Hello, and welcome back to this episode of Industry Focus Security. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Andy Lalinde, who is the Senior Manager for International and Domestic uh, Security for ESPN. Andy, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. So I know in your role, you're you're doing intelligence and security for events that could be happening all across the globe. How do you even begin to develop a plan to deal with, you know, things that can be going on all over the place? Uh, good question. I think that has to do with some of the timing that we have. Um, lead time, obviously, is a consideration, but given the nature of the events, we always start with a risk assessment of the country or the location and the venue, whether we have a history there, uh, whether we've, you know, know the security teams there. But the biggest thing is always the intelligence factor. Um, certain countries, you know, we feel a little bit more comfortable with, but nothing really starts without intelligence because we have to look at the, obviously what the risks are, whether that's personnel, life safety, you know, uh, cybersecurity, anything that kind of falls under the risk perspective. Uh, but we do different intelligence. So we have an in-house team, obviously, that we work with uh, through the Disney uh, Global Threat, sorry, Global Intelligence and Threat Assessment Team that we leverage uh, for larger events when we have more lead time. But in my case, and I know my teammates, uh, we all have a bit of an intelligence background as well. So we're also pulling our own intelligence, leveraging our human resources, uh, our human networks. Uh, but we also work quite a bit with the regional security office for the U.S. Embassy. Um, sometimes we reach out to other contacts that we have on the ground, networks that we've established, um, you know, just anybody that can possibly give us a good idea of what the operating environment is like. And then from there, we take other considerations in terms of, as I mentioned, the venue, uh, what the production size is in terms of how many people are traveling, because the perspective we take is we put ourselves in the position of anybody leaving their home country to go work at one of these productions uh, overseas. And that could be, you know, people from like Latin America, Europe, wherever coming to the U.S. or vice versa, uh, or wherever it is that we're going to produce, produce the uh, sporting event. So everything starts there. We look at uh, experience of the traveler. We look at uh, what the requirement are, production plans, uh, whether it's going to be something where we're producing everything from soup to nuts, or whether it's more of an external focus, moving through the city, looking at scenic shots, um, or whether we're doing anything where it requires a bit more of a presence, like, you know, occasionally going into like fan zones, anything like that, where it's a little bit higher risk, if there's alcohol in the area, anything that can kind of elevate um, the situation to a point where, you know, it causes any sort of an ease. Um, we look at uh, profiles of individuals that are going from the talent roster, essentially, uh, if they have like a sizable media presence or, you know, um, digital media presence, because there's a lot of people that are, you know, even though they're working for us, they may have like, you know, their own Instagram, Facebook live feeds, whatever the case may be, they have a huge following. So very recognizable and whether we need to do security plans in place for those personnel as they're moving to the city, uh, what they're doing, you know, when they're working for us and then moving through crowds. So everything kind of goes into that plan. Um, but it all starts with the intelligence, I would say, and then understanding what what everything is going to look like once it's on the ground. And then you make adjustments when you're on the ground, obviously, because, you know, production plans, it's television. Something happens when you're on the ground there. Things always change. So you got to be able to make decisions on the fly uh, with the information you have on hand. Totally understandable there. So at any given time, you can have people all over the globe. How do you keep them updated as to events that may be unfolding around them, you know, as you're learning about them? How do you stay connected with them? So the good news is we, the amount of planning that goes into every production is very well done in advance. And we have that in place. 
So for any time that we're deploying anything of size or where we have quite a bit of people on the ground, we obviously use mass notification tools. You know, there's a number of vendors out there that everybody's familiar with. Um, so we leverage that for emergency communications. But prior to that, there's generally a site survey that's done in place uh, where we discuss, you know, rally points. There's pre-travel briefings that we do ahead of time. There's briefings once we're on the ground with, you know, crew calls with sometimes they're daily, sometimes they're at the start of the production, depending on what it is. So all that is identified uh, ahead of time. And then, you know, for larger events, for example, let's say it's a big soccer match in Europe or something, we'll do like test messaging ahead just to kind of make sure everything is there. Uh, we set up communication channels, whether that's, you know, you know, your standards like Telegram, WhatsApp, whatever the case may be. So we communicate that way. Uh, as events are unfolding, you know, we it's definitely more so communication, but we're usually in a place um, when we're not moving through, like, say, the venue or so, going from place to place, checking on things and all that. Usually we're in a central location where the main operation is. It could be like a production vehicle. It could be a production control room off site. Uh, but we always have some sort of like operational command and control structure in place in terms of what's going to happen. So one of the things that we talked about offline before we got going was that you feel it's important to get it, get out from behind the desk and sort of yeah. see what your people are seeing. How do you feel that that plays into your planning and setting things up for the people when they arrive? Are you scouting ahead of time yourself or do you at least try to, or do you have a team that, that does that for you? I think that definitely helps. Um, and kind of going to my background, I come from an intelligence background I've uh, been a part of two different global security teams where I was kind of the intelligence person. So I did a lot of these assessments ahead of time for other people, be it, you know, physical security side assessments, event security for like conferences, meetings, whatever the case may be. So I have a little bit of more of a, I wouldn't say a bias, but I guess an understanding of what it does so that I can see the information that I was producing before and how it translates to on the ground. And in terms of like what that does, I think it makes you a better operator and understanding the value that it brings because there's so many things that you can look at and um, you know kind of how to get ahead of some of those risks and what you need to consider or as alternatives. Now, in terms of for major events, uh, like let's say, for example, a global sporting event like a World Cup or an Olympics or something, yes, there's generally a site survey that you go to in advance. Um, sometimes you make multiple trips, right, because you can't always see everything at once in some cases. Sometimes you lump it on the end of another trip. You know, you're on the ground. You're meeting with other venue security. In some cases, you know, um, embassy people like regional security office, you meet with them. You get idea perspectives from them. Other embassies, if you have contacts there, you get, you know, ideas from them, from those security offices. In other cases, you may not have that time. So let's say if it's a one-week production or something, you know, the production operation folks show up, say, like five days before the event. You might show up like day seven and spend a couple of days on the ground, you know, looking at routes, setting up meetings, looking at the scenario there. Uh, in other cases, you may not have that, but it's based on the production size because it could be a very small team, like one or two people, three people traveling. In those cases, you get a lot of more uh, human sources, Again, doing your own intelligence assessments from things uh, like open sources, closed sources in some cases, you know, vendor subscriptions that you, you know, everybody kind of, you know, plays in the space. Uh, and you make your best assessments there. And in some cases where you don't deploy to these, you hire the best providers that you've worked with to have a reputation and also the uh, capability to provide the service for you if they're able to assess on the ground. So all that goes into play. So you, you hit on it earlier about making contacts, you know, in the areas that you're going to be going to. Now, being a global organization that's going all over the place, 
how do you sort of weigh the reliability of how helpful they might be, you know, in the event that something happens or, you know, is there a, a process for vetting that? And are there like backup plans in case, of, you know, your, your local contacts or resources aren't available? I think in terms of the reliability, there's definitely precedent that comes into play. Like if they've helped you out in the past, it's the same thing with intelligence, right? If the intelligence is good, you know, have they delivered in the past, all the assessments that you run through when you're looking at intelligence pieces, it applies to when you're looking for like a physical security standpoint or event security standpoint, right? Like who can you trust? That's why everyone, like we have a preferred list of vendors that we work with um, because we know that they deliver and they have delivered at certain times in, in, you know, in other cases, like case in point, I had a messy situation at uh, the Champions League final last year. We worked with the close protection team that we had worked with in the past. And when everything went a little bit haywire at that production, um, because of, you know, the issue with counterfeit tickets, they really proved themselves to us and really did a great job for us in getting our people, you know, to safe locations, providing information and helping us navigate that. So I think that has to be factored in when it comes to the reliability standpoint. Uh, in some cases, there isn't an element of trust because you are trying to build those relationships. So in those cases where you don't have an established relationship, you rely on other contacts. Uh, in our case, you know, we work with other networks, other stuff like that. Um, contacts that we have, other production folks that have worked with these other vendors. Uh, there's also forums that you can go like, uh, you know, the OSAC uh, chapters, they have their major sporting events uh, or major sports groups that they do. Uh, there's media and entertainment sectors. And there's also other uh, Google groups like in-house uh, where people exchange information for vendors that they've worked with. And then from there, it's just getting an idea of like their capabilities once you like vet them, interview them. Um, and you ask these type of hard questions uh, because in some cases, you know, everybody talks about, oh, well, you know, we have like extraction services. We can do this. Well, in a crisis situation, everybody's going to be pulling for this. So it's really a competition for resources. So it's really seeing how you can actually leverage those resources and what priority you have. And if you don't have that priority, then who else do you rely on? And it's essentially like everything will have like a plan A to like a plan D, you know, so hopefully you never get to plan D, but sometimes there is a plan B that gets enacted. Exactly. So what would you say is probably the most challenging, you know, event that you you've had to work and how important was the pre-planning that went into it? I think, as I mentioned, um, in my experience, the one that actually was a bit of a challenge was the Champions League final last year. Um, because if you recall, it was originally slated to be in St. Petersburg, Russia. And when I got the assignment handed to me, it was late December, early January. And I kind of saw geopolitically just because of the intel, you know, intel weeniness, if you want to call it that in me. Uh, the first thing I said is I don't think this is really going to play out. And then when everything happened with the invasion, right, you know, it kind of relocated to Paris. Um, I was already going to be in Paris for a different event. And so I kind of took on a dual responsibility there, um, splitting the assignments that I had. But Champions League was always my dedicated event. So I looked at it in terms of, okay, this is a major event that's being relocated in a matter of like two months. And they're trying to put this together, you know, for month three, um, what are the changes? So you looked at the venue, which was the Stade de France, which had a history of a terrorist attack, you know, in prior major sporting events. Uh, what was the response there? What was the change in security posture from back then to, you know, what they're doing now? So they added a different thing, like a security perimeter. Uh, I spent a ton of time at that stadium running routes, going around, learning, you know, all the different passageways that you can, um, seeing what groups I had, because for me, we, you know, the size of our company, we have different subsidiaries in, you know, Latin America. So one group, for example, had all the rights to do everything inside the stadium, televise, 
other groups had only rights to kind of show stuff outside the stadium. Then you had a non-rights holder group that was in an external compound that was not protected. So I had to kind of look at all that stuff. And I, was, uh, I wasn't I was alone, thankfully. I did have a little bit of help. And as I mentioned, I had some close protection guys. So I had them positioned in places that would at least give me information for like egress for executives, for personnel, kind of what things we're looking at. And I was just happened to be floating around. And, you know, when I saw how everything was going with the counterfeit tickets, people getting thrown out, people, you know, rushing the perimeter to try to get into the stadium, I started raising a little bit of awareness. And then when I saw that uh, the event was going a little bit sideways because, uh, you know, it was delayed and everything, that's basically when everything kind of came into play where I had to like go from one group, make sure the people inside the stadium were fine, the people externally were not. How do I connect the two? How do I move people from here? And then, you know, I'm in the middle of the, everything in the chaos, getting tear gassed with everybody else. Um, you know, it's not intentionally. It was just because of the way the wind patterns were. I was getting hit. And I, I will say credit to the military. I never thought that getting gassed as a in my training days would come into play, but it actually it, it helped me react accordingly. Like I knew what to expect. Uh, where like some of the people that I was leading were not, and so it, I, I think all that was a very challenging an event. But at the end of the day, after the first half, when all the you know police response was over and they cleared everything out. We were able to put on television we never lost time and you know in the tv and production world the biggest thing is you know that can get you in trouble is a dark screen <laughs> essentially um we didn't really lose anything coverage wise or like that if anything i think it added a little bit more color to the production because of what was going on it had a different story uh, but no it, i think that's the most chaotic event i've had um but i think it had to do with all the planning there because i did sit in some of those security briefings and i asked a lot of questions and i wasn't comfortable with some of those responses that the security was giving me um because i just didn't think it was more the assumption was that nothing was going to happen i just don't think they planned for like the counterfeit ticketing issue and what it would lead to um and so you know it's a learning point for everybody you know we all learn from that event and but for me i think the response that we had was probably the most I think personally rewarding that I've had in terms of challenges and the role that I've been in. Um, you know, there's always something that happens at different events, but that's definitely the most chaotic one I've had. Well, I mean, it's, it's a very good point there. It's, it's the old, the old saying of you don't know what you don't know, you know, and at any given time, uh, you know, plans can change and plans can go out the window and you just got to be, you know, agile and ready to adapt. And, and I think that's important, you know, in the pre-planning, you know, phase as well, you know, as we talked about having a plan A and hope, hoping you never need plan B. Right. Um, so to sort of finish up here, do you have any suggestions for somebody who's looking to get into a role like yours, you know, sort of maybe where they should start or areas they should focus on, you know, if they, they need to learn sort of a, a geopolitical, you know, view of things and then how to apply that in a security way. Um, I don't know if the geopolitical world would be the best place to start. It's definitely a good foundation just because you have those understandings. So the thing about it is when it comes to intelligence, right, you know, you have tactical and strategic, essentially. When you're looking at a, a role like mine, you're more concerned about the tactical, what do you need to operate in the next three hours to three weeks type of, you know, atmosphere. But in my case, I'm able to kind of see the trends a little bit and, you know, react or at least get a little bit more preemptive about things. Um, but I don't say that's necessarily the case to get into the industry because there's a lot of people that come from different backgrounds and it's really just more about being able to solve problems, right? You know, it's never going to be a perfect solution, but the analysis paralysis is kind of what gets you when something happens. So if you're able to kind of just make a decision with 80% information and run with it and, you know, everything kind of seems to work out, um, 
and that's really the biggest thing is just the problem solving. So, you know, this type of role comes from different backgrounds. There's a lot of law enforcement. People kind of work their way into this. Some people come out completely green and learn. Um, but no, I wouldn't say that the, the, the intelligence role is essential to get into it, but it is nice to have because when you're doing these assessments ahead of time, you have the research skills, you have the networks, you have that. So for me, I found it extremely beneficial, I would say. Excellent. I think that's a, a great place to uh, wrap up. Andy Lalinde from ESPN, I want to thank you for joining us here today. A lot of great knowledge. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. All right. That's going to conclude this week's uh, podcast for industry-focused security. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode. Until then, stay safe.